I asked them to play it anyway, so forgive me if it's annoying. This song is actually used the words from the Metta Sutta, so it at least has、uh, some credibility as being spiritual. Well, for the moment. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So 
with a boundless heart Should one cherish every single guy said I'm the boss what did you say what did you say I'm the teacher now he's changed his tune With great respect and with great kindness, it's a privilege to welcome you all to Spare Rock this beautiful, rainy, gorgeous Monday evening that constitutes our 33rd year in a row of coming together and meditating. So thank you for being part of the live Sangha. I'd also like to thank uh, the live stream Sangha that has been joining us, uh, all of those folks who are watching in their pajamas dry with a hamburger, possibly. <laughs> My name is Christina Tavera. I am one of the event coordinators here in this building, and um, I am very lovingly and abundantly supported by an extraordinary group of volunteers who have welcomed you and have taken your offering and who have sold you that fabulous cookie that you're enjoying right now. I'd like to thank them and thank them that they come back every single week to offer support so that we can continue offering this beautiful evening. Um, if you see them, give them a hug. They all have little name tags on. Kevin Griffin is our teacher today. Welcome back, Kevin. Yay! Kevin uh, has been practicing Buddhist meditation since 1985. He's a Dharma teacher, author, and musician. And the music that you've been hearing this, this evening is his own um, album which is kind of cool. He specializes in helping people in recovery connect with meditation, and he leads our monthly Dharma and recovery program. And if you're interested in that, please check out the drop-in section of the website. And tonight, we are celebrating Kevin's newest book titled Living Kindness, Buddhist Teachings for a Troubled World. The book is for sale at a very, very good price in the lobby, and um, he has promised that he will sign those books uh, after the program this evening. Now is a really great time to turn off your cell phones, and uh, <laughs> thanks, Kevin. And um, <laughs> if you haven't, if you haven't been able to hear me that great, we've got these great audio-assisted hearing devices on the back wall. Please um, help yourself to one of those. Uh, no, don't repeat what he said, will you? 
It's going to make your job harder tonight. Ah, la, 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 la. <laughs> For those of you who are new, the restrooms are at, at the end of this lobby, and there's another set upstairs. The bookstore will be open until about 15 minutes after the program is over tonight. And um, there is tea and cookies, and uh, all of it is run on the honor system, so please pay as you go along. And what else can I tell you? Um, I'm going to encourage you to enjoy the grounds this evening, but don't go past the wooden gates. They are on the finishing weeks of a two-month-long silent retreat. And um, so please enjoy from outside of the gate. And yeah, but if we all ran up there. <laughs> they couldn't catch us all. It would be a good test for their practice, <laughs> just to go up and like yell and dance. <laughs> we could do that. I think. I'm not following you on that one. Okay, Pamela. sorry. You're on your own. Uh, so as I mentioned, live stream is a great option if coming out here is just not going to be the best thing for you. So um, please check out live stream. There are many classes also that we're live streaming, and you can do it from home in your pajamas. Thank you very much. My name is Christina, and if I can help you, my office is to the left of the bookstore. Enjoy your evening. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Christina. All right, so uh, we have some time to meditate, which uh, I presume is one of the reasons you came here tonight. Um, So um, my uh, general approach is to give some instruction for the first period of of the sitting and then to just leave some quiet time uh, once we're settled in. So just beginning by just settling into a comfortable posture. If you're sitting in a chair, you want it's best if you can have two feet on the ground so you're very stable. Sitting on a cushion, ideally you have your knees touching the ground. And sitting upright with a, an ease and relaxation in the body. And you can close your eyes. Or if you're not comfortable with your eyes closed, just lower your gaze so you're stepping out of the visual world. And letting the body soften and settle. When we practice in the evening like this, often we're carrying a lot of energy from our day. So just to acknowledge that, notice if there's stress or fatigue that's come along with you tonight. And not so much trying to get rid of it, but again, having a sense of ease and non-conflict, non-contention. So an important starting point of mindfulness is acceptance of how things are in this moment, whether it's pleasant or not not fighting with it or trying to control our experience. You might notice if there are points of tension or tightness in the body, 
often the jaw will get tight, so relaxing the jaw and the facial muscles, shoulders, softening the belly. There can be a sense of kind of feeling the body being drawn to the earth, the feeling of gravity in the body. As we release, stop holding, just allowing the skeleton to hold us upright, softening the flesh. So this is arriving in the body. And then letting your attention open to sound as well. As with physical sensations, we don't resist or enter into conflict with sound. If there's a sound, we just notice that. Hearing sounds in the room, sounds from outside, and sounds from inside the body as well. Some people tune into the sound in their ears, sometimes called the sound of silence. There's body, there's sound. It's also helpful to notice mood. See what emotions may be present right now. Oftentimes when we find ourselves stuck on a cycle of thinking, what we don't notice is that behind the thoughts is an emotion that's giving energy to the thoughts. So opening to allowing emotions to be there, to just feel the feelings, sometimes helps us, helps us to step out of the cycle of thought and just into a more direct visceral experience. So body, sound, mood, emotions. Noticing these at the beginning of a sitting is just a way of kind of acknowledging the landscape or the background of experience. So as we start to come in close to the breath, 
there's still this kind of sense of openness. So the breath, sensations of breath can come into the foreground. But the other aspects of experience are still there, but more in the background. The breath is the clear focus. And we connect with the breath, again, on a physical level, just feeling the sensations. This isn't something we think about. And we're not controlling the breath or breathing in a special way. Whereas with yogic breathing, there might be a pattern we're trying to impose. With mindfulness of breath, we are just being aware of how the body is naturally breathing. And the feeling of that, and particularly focusing either at the nostrils, the sensation of air coming in and out, or if that's not clear, we can focus on the movement of the belly, the rising and falling. Either point is helpful, a useful way to be mindful of breath. Again, bringing an attitude and a quality of ease. We're not struggling to be so concentrated. We're just sitting in this room with this community and enjoying being awake, being alive. Enjoying breathing. (coughs) Nothing special. It's natural for the mind to wander when we're trying to pay attention to one thing like the breath, something very neutral and without much drama in it. The mind seeks stimulation. So the attention falls off the breath. When you notice that's happened, acknowledge that. Maybe even notice where the mind has gone. 
and then see if you can just come back without adding a judgment or a story. Just see, oh, thinking, thinking about that. Okay. And start again. Connecting again with the breath. Most human activities involve some kind of effort to control something or achieve something, some goal. And so that habitual way of acting can invade our meditation. Meditation asks us take a different approach, not striving, not trying to achieve, not grading ourselves. And yet there's an effort involved. How do we make an effort without striving, without a goal? This is the great challenge. And no one can teach you that. You have to explore for yourself. Notice the quality of your effort. And see if there's a way to practice mindfulness without that striving.
All right, so uh, we'll have a little break for about 15 minutes and uh, come back for the Dharma talk. I believe the cookies uh, support the, ch- the family program. Is that still true? Hopefully so. You can eat them. You'll still have the karmic consequences of ingesting the calories, but there will also be beneficial karma. So you just have to balance that for yourself. To the person who owns the black Mercedes station wagon 7VEG400, if you wouldn't mind moving your car, you've blocked someone in who needs to leave. Thank you.
All right. I hope you can hear me over the sound of cookies being chewed. They're soft. It's not like chips. You know, if they had corn chips, we'd really be in trouble. Hmm? They sold out. <laughs> All right. Sorry to hear it. But it's good for the children and the families. So, so yeah, I'm Kevin Griffin. Uh, Christina mentioned that. I thank Christina and all the volunteers for showing up and supporting Monday night. I haven't taught here in uh, quite a few years. I, I, as she mentioned, I have a regular monthly class at Spirit Rock, uh, the second Friday of each month, called Dharma and Recovery. And I, and I am best known for my teaching around Buddhism and recovery, the 12 Steps, Addiction, and I've written a bunch of books on that topic. But, but this new book is more of a general Buddhist book for those ships at sea, um, those people watching from afar, uh, living kindness um, is, you know, the title is meant to uh, trigger something in a Buddhist's mind where they go, living kindness, wait, loving kindness. Oh, this must be about trying to practice loving kindness in my life. And it, it is something like that. Um, It's really um, kind of the starting point is asking what is loving kindness, and and yeah, what what did the Buddha really say about it? I think that my impression is that sometimes, in the way that mindfulness is becoming somewhat trivialized in the larger culture, sometimes loving kindness gets that treatment too. Oh, it's just about being happy and loving everybody, being nice to everybody, Not, and nothing wrong with that. It's good to be loving and be nice to, to everybody. But, um, you know, the, that's not really an end point. It's not really su- uh, sufficient uh, to encompass what, what the Buddha was talking about. I think what he was talking about was more uh, complicated than that and, um, and more subtle. You know, and when we just starting with the topic, so in English we have this really um, compound word, loving-kindness, which is supposed to be a translation of a Pali word, the Pali, the language of the early Buddhist teachings, metta, just five letters, M-E-T-T-A. We need two words to try to communicate it, which tells us one thing, that there is no translation in English of the word metta. Um, which immediately causes us a problem (laughs) because it means we have to figure it out more by inference, Uh, which I think is ultimately true of the Dharma anyway. I mean, people can tell you stuff and you can read things and you can hear talks, but until you experience it for yourself, until you experience mindfulness inside or dukkha, which we translate as suffering, also an insufficient translation, you you don't know exactly what it means. So I think the same is true of metta. But so... I want to talk about a few different dimensions of of loving kindness, and I, and I use the I kind of go back and forth between using the Pali and using the English. But so first, I'll I'll talk about 
um, the beginning practice of metta, which we're asked in the beginning to, the, f- the first part of m- loving-kindness meditation is to practice loving-kindness for yourself. And a lot of people hear that and go, uh, I, I don't really like myself, or I'm not, I don't feel that good about myself. I, how do I love myself? What does that mean? So I'll read you the beginning of the chapter that I wrote in this chapter. It's called May I Be Peaceful, Loving Yourself. I don't like myself any more than anyone else likes themselves. There's nobody in the world who knows better all my failings, my impatience and irritability, my prejudices and delusions, my moodiness and self-centeredness. And don't even get me started on my past. Suffice to say, I lived the life of a self-indulgent musician for almost 20 years. Not a lot to be proud of there. Not a lot to like about myself. So the challenge of practicing loving, or indeed living kindness, starts with the very first step in the process, sending love to yourself. Many people find this to be an intimidating order. But I think that difficulty results from another misunderstanding of metta. You don't earn metta by being extra good or nice. You don't get metta points for being generous or selfless. Metta isn't really a part of that karmic economy. It's more of a birthright. Here are two reasons to give metta to yourself. It's hard to give love to others if you can't give it to yourself. And... Your heart cries out for love. When it comes to loving others, it makes sense that if our feelings toward ourselves are unkind, any effort to be kind to others will be adulterated. These efforts will always be colored by some form of neediness. Either we will be trying to get validation from others or compensate for our lack of self-worth by being extra good. These external efforts will never succeed as long as our inner world feels barren. And it's that very barren feeling that makes us think we don't deserve love. We look inside and we see anxiety and sadness, worry and stress, irritation and judgment. Then we equate feeling bad with being bad. And in this formulation, if we are bad, then clearly we don't deserve love. Instead of self-judgment, metta encourages us to care for ourselves simply because we are suffering, to be kind to the sadness and worry, to be gentle with the judgment and irritation. We actually give love to those very feelings. Rather than fighting with our inner life, we open to it with acceptance and compassion. There, so there's a sutta, and the suttas are the early discourses that the Buddha taught uh, that have been passed down. And there's a very short sutta, which I find really interesting. And it's got these two characters that show up in, in several of the suttas. And, and I kind of like the way the suttas have stories and they have characters. They're real people. 
Um, and it's Queen Malika and King Pasenadi. I kind of have a crush on Queen Malika, I have to admit. I don't know, just reading about her, she just seems great. Um, she was a flower girl, a poor flower girl, and she had so much like spiritual joy and radiance that the king passing by her in the his capital saw her selling flowers by the side of the road and stop, who is that woman? And he wound up marrying her. I think he had a few other wives though, so I, it, it, we don't hear too much about them. But anyway, one day, King Pasanadi says to Queen Malika, is there anyone that you hold more dear than yourself? Kind of a, uh, a question that when the king asks you that, I think, I'm not sure how you you're, think you're supposed to answer. Like, do you love your, is there anybody you can think of that you love more than you, honey? Well, Queen Malika was very honest, and she said, no, there's no one that I hold more dear to myself. And King Pasnadi, and she said, what about you? And King Pasnadi admitted that he too held himself dear, that there was no one that he held more dear than himself. You know, even these statements in our culture, you know, that, that sounds sort of off in some way, right? Because in, in our culture, I, I think there's this sense that we should never say anything good about ourselves. Um, I don't know. Uh, in any case, they go to the Buddha who they, they know, which is kind of cool too. Like, hey, let's go talk to the Buddha about this, you know. And, uh, you know, because I know a lot of times I've, wished that he was around you know seriously like wow I mean there's some good teachers around but anyway uh, I don't want me to compare um, they go to him and they say you know this is what we we discovered that's what we realized and his response was that is really great that's really good that you had that uh, that you said that that you feel that so he says he says, um, let me see if I can read this part. It says, the Buddha says that if you look around, you find that everyone feels this way. Everyone holds themselves dear. His conclusion then is that knowing how everyone feels, you should never hurt anyone. They are all precious to themselves. This is a convoluted somewhat convoluted way of getting to the point, but it does make sense. It's asking people to have empathy. I know that I wouldn't want to be harmed, so I'm sure no one else wants to be harmed. Essentially, it's preaching the golden rule. But the Buddha then adds that if you love yourself, you won't harm anyone else. This seems like a moment when the Buddha might have addressed the opposite notion, that one who does not love oneself will harm another which he doesn't. For those of us who have struggled with self-hatred, depression, anxiety, or despair, this seems like maybe the more vital issue. The current phrase, hurt people, hurt people, captures this idea succinctly. But he never takes up that side of the issue. So the question that I ask when I read this then The Buddha isn't talking about qualifying for love, earning love, 
you know, you're really good, you're, you know, you're, you're really nice, or whatever. It's, he's just saying, every, everyone holds themselves dear. And so as I, I've reflected on this for some time, what I came to believe about what he's saying is that, that the way we hold ourselves dear is that we take care of ourselves. That the way that we know that we love ourselves, the way that we actually do love ourselves, is by caring for ourselves. So if we're hungry, we eat. If we're tired, we rest. If we feel spiritually barren, we seek out teachings or support or uh, a teacher. That this is love. That it isn't about a feeling or a comparison, but it's an action. It's living. It's living kindness, right? And and what we can see that the contrast to this, which is quite common, is not eating well, not resting, overworking, you know, abusing drugs and alcohol, you know, harming ourselves, right? That's hating yourself. Thinking I'm a jerk isn't really hating yourself, I don't think. That's just comparing mind. It's just a thought, right? But taking care of yourself, I think that's love. So another thing that brings me to that conclusion is when I look at the, the Metta Sutta, the Buddha's discourse on loving kindness, in it he says, if you're kind of looking for what does he mean by loving kindness, he says... Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Now I've been familiar with that sutta for over 25 years. But there's certain, the more I look at it, (laughs) and this is the suttas are, are very rich, you know, you keep getting layers on it. I used to think that he was just saying, like, oh, just the way mothers love their children. And I was sort of imagining this idyllic relationship, you know, the mother holding and rocking her baby, you know, and loving her kids. Oh, aren't they cute? You know, they're so sweet. But what it says, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say even as a mother hugs her children or kisses her children or thinks her children are cute. It says, even as a mother protects her children. It's a protection, which is caring for someone. It's caring for their life. Protects with her life. She's caring for them. She's feeding them. She's making sure that they're clothed, that they're safe, that they're healthy. Kids can be really annoying at times, you know? Uh, mothers don't always like feel a lot of sweetness and warmth with their children. You know, does that mean they don't love them? Does that mean they're not going to give them breakfast? No, of course not. They're going to care for them, no matter what, no matter how the children behave. You know. So that's what I think the Buddha is saying when he says we hold ourselves dear. We take care of ourselves. If we, if we love ourselves, we take care of ourselves. You know, we may think negative things about ourselves, but, but you know, do, do we harm ourselves? 
and so I will say, I don't mean to take this completely out of the mental realm because I do think that just thinking really negative things about yourself all the time is not, is not kind either. But what are we supposed to do about that? You know, The problem with that, if, if we realize, oh, I have the, all these negative th- thoughts, you know, this phrase, the inner critic, and I, I'm not all that comfortable with that phrase. I, maybe just because I feel like I don't want to think of, I don't want to embody that, those thoughts and give them like, you know, an identity. But in any case, this idea of, you know, negative thinking, well, when we come to Spirit Rock and we practice mindfulness or loving kindness, what we're doing is we're trying to care for that mind. We're trying to care for our mind, for the thoughts, and, and, and change our relationship to them. And if, if instead we look at that inner critic and think we have to get into a fight with it, well, we're just perpetuating that whole relationship, that whole idea of, oh, there's something wrong with me and I have to fix myself or I have to get rid of it. You know, if we, the inner critic has to be loved too. You know? Oh, that's an interesting <laughs> problem to address. Well, fortunately, as I say, there isn't an inner critic. You know, there's just a thought and there's a feeling. And when we're present and we're mindful and we hold that gently, then, then we change our relationship to it and it loses its power. So this practice of loving ourselves is internal and external. And we don't have to get an A. We don't, we don't even have to get like a B plus in order to earn it, you know. It's just a human need. You know. It's just a natural human expression to take care of yourself, isn't it? It's only when we're really confused and in pain that we don't take care of ourselves. So let me move on to this other dimension of loving kindness or living kindness. This is... Uh, the dimension, the social dimension. And for this, I I worked with this sutta uh, in which the Buddha comes to visit some monks. And it's another story. Again, there are characters in it. There's three monks practicing together. The senior one is Anuruddha, who is, again, someone who appears a lot in the suttas because he was a very advanced practitioner and became fully enlightened uh, under the Buddha and was known for his psychic powers. Uh, but at the time, Anuruddha is, is meditating in a forest with two other monks, and the Buddha comes to check on them. And the sutta has kind of two main parts to it. And the first part is just this conversation about how things are going. And it's very kind of mundane. You know, the Buddha comes and the first thing he says is, are you getting alms food? You know, are you getting 
finding food because you know the monks had to uh, depend upon the support of the community. So each day they had to go to a village and and with their bowls and and um, beg, although they wouldn't say anything. They would just go and you know their, their presence would be community. And they, the villagers would understand why they were there. And it's it's not a significant moment in this sutta, but it's interesting to me that t- some 2,600 years ago, when these suttas were collected and memorized, that the, the early Buddhists decided, let's keep that part about where the Buddha asks if we're getting fed. Because what it shows is that the Buddha cares for his monks, right? He, he's concerned about them on the most basic level. And it's like, we can address other things, but if you're not getting fed, you know, it's going to be really rough for you to meditate. Have you ever tried to meditate when you're starving? You know, not easy. As the Buddha had discovered, if you know his story about when he starved himself. So I'm, I'm just touched by that, just that very simple thing. But then he... And what he wants to know is, how are you guys getting along? And he goes through this dialogue with Anuruddha, who's kind of the spokesperson for the, for the three monks. You know, how, do, how are you getting along? And uh, I'll, I'll read a little bit of the sutta. It's from the Majjhima Nikaya, uh, number 31, if you're following along at home or anywhere else. Called The Shorter Discourse in Gosinga. And it has this kind of, sometimes kind of poetic, but repetitive language where he says, are you living, he says, Anuruddha, I hope that you are all living in concord with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. And Anuruddha repeats all those words back, saying, yes, we are living in concord, mutual appreciation, blending like milk and water. Because it's really important in the Sangha for people to get along. You know, there, are, there are stories of, the, of monks fighting with each other in conflicts. In the Buddha. This is one of the uh, real no-nos in Buddhism is schism. Right? But the Buddha, he keeps kind of asking more, well, how do you live like this? You know, don't just tell me you're doing it. I want to know. And, and Anuruddha says... I think thus, it is a gain for me that I am living with such companions in the holy life. So his first thought is a thought of gratitude that he has this community. Uh, you know, really an important thing to remember if you live in some community or if you live with other people. Uh, these days a lot of people don't. You know, a lot of people live on their own. I've, I've done that, but I, I'm currently living with my wife and my daughter is off at college, but... Uh, She's still part of the family. But this ad, first of all, just this idea of like, oh, I remind myself that I'm lucky, lucky to have these people because, you know, there's a lot of things that can happen when you're living together. It says, I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness toward them openly and privately. Verbal acts of loving kindness, mental acts of loving kindness. So he's pointing to the three forms of karma, thoughts, words, act- actions. So, again, he's showing that loving kindness is not just a thought. <laughs> it's also, I need to speak with kindness, and I need to act with kindness. He says, 
I consider, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Again, like a very beautiful idea, just to think sometimes, oh, you know, let me just let go like of my agenda and see what other people want to do. And then finally he says, we are different in body, but one in mind. Uh, beautiful line. We are different in body, but one in mind. You know, and, you know, if you look around this room, you know, we are certainly all different in body, but you know, we are one in mind. We all experience the same things. You know, we experience thinking, feeling, emotions. We have experience all the five hindrances. Hopefully, we experience loving kindness and compassion. We experience all those things. We all share the human mind. Then, it again, gets into a very mundane discussion about how they take care of their camp. You know, because they're kind of camping in the woods. He talks about how when they come back from the alms round, one person sets up the seats, puts out the water, the refuse bucket, and then whoever eats last cleans up and throws things away. And it's just like very detailed about just how they take care of their, their little camp in the woods. And again, it's like this was preserved for a reason, to show that it's really important to live in harmony with people. It's, again, very easy to kind of, oh, come to Spirit Rock, practice loving kindness, and then go home. And what's going on there, you know? I mean, I, uh, uh, um, uh, Christina got a little wrong my bio. I started practicing in 1980, but I got sober in 1985. So my real practice didn't start. Uh, so maybe she had it right, actually. But, you know, I used to go in retreats and then go home and get loaded. You know, it's like, that's not really what the Buddha was teaching, you know. I thought somehow I was going to get some kind of a special spiritual high, and then I wouldn't need the drugs and alcohol anymore. But it just, uh, you know, really points to the, the idea that we want to bring these teachings into our lives in, in a really the broadest way possible. Uh, and that, you know, it's easy to sit here and send love to people, but sometimes it's really tough to get along with the people that we see in our daily lives, in our work life, family life, among friends. You know, I was just um, dealing with a conflict in, a, in an, another sangha that uh, two of the leaders of that community had contacted me, and there was all this turmoil going on, and, you know, and they're people who are very sincere practitioners and really devoted to the Dharma. But, you know, there's stuff that they're, they don't see that they haven't been able to work out. They're, they're not blending like milk and water. They're, you know, blending like water and oil, as they say. And somebody, I think, threw a match on that too. So, um, so I think it's, to me, it's really important that my practice be beyond the pillow. I've spent a lot of time on retreat over the years. And I have to say that going on retreats did not solve my life. Uh, in fact, I probably talk about it in here. Uh, I oftentimes write things and then forget what I wrote. Uh, it was part of aging, probably. Not that I'm aging, but it, I might be. I don't know. Um, 
you know, I can remember coming home from a retreat early in my relationship with the woman who became my wife and getting into an argument with her within like an hour of her picking me up at the airport and being and like completely losing it, you know. And just really be like, oh, wow, like this is not <laughs> what I was trying to bring home, you know. And seeing that, you know, retreats are beautiful and really a vital part of practice, but they really open us up and they don't prepare us for interaction, you know. Fifteen minutes with talking to a Dharma teacher every three days does not prepare you for uh, meeting up with your partner or your kids or uh, your parents, you know. So it's become really important to me over the years to, to try to make this practice uh, be part of every aspect of my life. And, and I, I don't succeed at that. And frankly, being honest about that is part of my practice, you know, an important part of my practice. I, I don't want to sit up here and, and project some sort of, you know, aura out that, that I uh, have got it all figured out. Um, but I do try to find the Dharma wherever I go, you know. Um, so one more sutta I'll talk about um, is the simile of the saw. And this is one of the most dramatic suttas in the Pali Canon, which it's all about non-ill will, which is another definition of metta. You know, metta isn't just loving, it's also not hating. Now that might sound obvious, but it's easy, I would say it's easier to love people that we love than it is to not hate people that we hate. So you can see that when you sit down to do this practice, where the work is, you know. And it's nice, it's great to sit here and think of the people you love and radiate love to them, you know. But that can't be the whole of the practice, right? And even in the Metta Sutta, which I'm going to go through a little bit, uh, if, I, if we have time, you'll see that uh, that's not all that the Buddha teaches. But in the simile of the saw, uh, the climax of it, is when the Buddha says, even if bandits were sawing off your limbs with a two-handled saw, which is one of my favorite details, it's not just a saw, but there's two handles, which means there's two of them, right? (laughs) They're sawing off your limbs one by one with a two-handled saw. If a thought of ill will arises in your mind, then you are not practicing my teachings. Okay. Do you think the Sufi dancing class is still going on? So we could get to that and skip out of here because I don't think this is for me. I'm not going to. There's this famous phrase in the Alcoholics Anonymous book What an order. I can't go through with it. That's kind of what I feel like when I first read that. What an order, I can't go through with it, okay. 
So, well, first of all, we know the Buddha sets the bar very high, you know. But I do have a couple questions. First of all, they're bandits, right? What are they going to do with my limbs, you know? <laughs> Obviously, they already took all my stuff. So why do they want my limbs? That, that's confusing. So I have to admit that for some years I, I took this as just being an extreme kind of uh, example, not meant to be taken seriously. And, and, and I will say it, it's important to recognize throughout the sutta because it, it, it gives uh, several different situations of conflict where the Buddha keeps saying, don't let a thought of ill will or don't let anger arise in your mind. And that it's important to acknowledge that he's not saying don't do anything about it. Don't try to get away from the bandits. You know, or, uh, you know, he's just saying watch your mind, you know. So there, there's this case earlier in the sutta where he's telling this monk who's he's been uh, associating over much with the with the nuns <laughs> uh, that like you know even if people attack the nuns don't let a thought of anger or ill will arise in your mind and i asked uh ajahn pasano the buddhist monk about this and he said you know notice he's not saying don't do anything or don't protect the nuns he's saying don't let anger arise that it's the mental part of it that's important to recognize um but what actually came to my mind at one point, and it was because I was teaching this sutta at uh, a Catholic school, uh, St. Mary's College, and, uh, and I was raised Catholic, and, uh, which isn't particularly relevant to this because the story, but, but what came to mind to me was the story of Christ on the cross and Christ uh, him being tortured and... Uh, you know, the, the, he was like, the night before, he's like tortured and whipped and they drive this crown of thorns into his head and then he has to drag a huge wooden cross through Jerusalem and he gets spat upon and people are throwing rocks at him and then they put him up on the cross. And You know, normally when you crucify someone, you just tie them up. I don't, you know, that's because... I love I love this particular it's my perversity, but I love love this particular detail that what kills you when you're crucified is you suffocate. Your arms are strapped back so that you can't get enough air, and eventually you run out of air and suffocate. Gross, but anyway. Um, but but they nail him up right just for if just for good measure, and then there's the spears through the side. Right? So so he's been tortured. So I would I think we could. Put that side by side with having your limbs sawed off one by one. I think it's similar pain-wise, I mean, at a certain point. And what Christ says, at least as I recall from my early training, you know, forgive them, Lord, they know not what they've done. So he is not only not letting a thought of ill will arise, but he's actually praying that they not even have to bear the results of their karma. Forgive them. Let them not bear the fruits of this karma. Because you know, if you kill uh, the, the um, 
redeemer or whatever, you know, you know, if you kill the Buddha or you kill an enlightened being, it's really bad karma. You know, <laughs> traditionally you go to hell. And now hell in, in Buddhism is a lot like the hell in Christianity. It just is impermanent. So you're only there for a few million years. And then you come back and you get to be like a cockroach for a while, you know, or something. I'm not exactly sure, but it's something like that. So at least it's impermanent, but it's bad uh, during those, those years. But I think it's just... So, so what inspired me about that is that there's this sort of Western culture. We have this image that actually aligns with what the Buddha was saying. Like, and then I was like, oh, so he was serious. I guess he was really serious. An enlightened being, you know, could really do this. Um, I'll have to take his word for it. But clearly, again, it really points to this challenge, practicing non-ill will. So in the the loving-kindness meditation practice, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, you know, we practice loving-kindness towards ourselves and then towards our dear ones, and then we try to work with a neutral person and kind of cultivate love for them. And then we're asked to practice loving-kindness for our enemy or for a difficult person. And, and many of us, when we get to that point, it's like we're going along, ah, this is nice, you know, really grooving on this. And you're kind of floating along, there's like, Oh, God. Yeah, him. Uh, right. Oh, wait. I was supposed to be practicing loving kindness. May you be... May you be happy. All right. May you be peaceful. May you be safe. Okay, let's move on. Radiating kindness. Okay, good. That's bad. And we kind of lose it, basically, at that point, right? We kind of lose the juice. And uh, I, I don't know about you. Maybe, maybe you guys don't. I do. And so uh, it really, the way I look at that is, first of all, it's an insight practice. It gives me insight into the limits of my own capacity to love. So that's good to know, right? Let me just be honest with myself. What's my capacity to love? In the Vasudhimaga, which is a commentary on the, the Buddhist teachings from about 500 uh, AD or common era, it says when you practice loving kindness for the neutral person, try to really turn them into a dear person. And I've had that experience where uh, uh, doing a long retreat and you're practicing loving kindness for, a difficult, for just a neutral person. Like I, I worked with the person who used to work with the, in a video store over in Berkeley or in my neighborhood. And I remember after a month retreat where I was practic- just visualizing him, I didn't know what his name was. I just would see him in, in my mind. I walked into the, visu- into the video store and I saw him and I was like, ah, there he is. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this works. You know, I really was able to uh, shift him from, from uh, neutral to, to a dear one. But it, it says, maybe just practice with the difficult person. Just try to make them neutral. 
Which I, I like that, you know, because that sounds, oh, that sounds manageable, right? That's not so much getting my limbs sawed off, you know, that's like, oh, can I just kind of think of that difficult person and not, get, you know, get tight? Can I just think of them and just have a distance from them, a neutrality toward them? I think that's a good model for practice and a reasonable kind of goal in our practice. Um, so uh, it's nice. I, you know, it, I guess I, I have more time, which is great because there's a lot. There's more I can talk about. Um, so. So uh, the the next chapter in my book, the one that's after Simile of the Saw, is called uh, The Greed, Hatred, and Delusion Report. It's about reading the news. Uh, and it's... Uh, this is, you know, uh, there's difficult people, and then there's the world, <laughs> and like a difficult world. Which is kind of the subtitle of the book is Buddhist teachings for a troubled world, and the idea is to recognize that what we're seeing in the news is what has always been the news. It's always the Buddha talked about this twenty six hundred years ago. The same thing. Greed, hatred, and delusion. People chasing after money, power, wealth, fame, control, war, conflict, schism. And the delusion, the chasing after those things will somehow bring satisfaction and happiness. So seeing that you know, it brings to mind, I think, it's the talking heads line, same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. David Byrne goes on and on. Same as it ever was. You, you hear it kind of rumbling through your mind, right? So, one of the things we can do with that is maybe develop some equanimity around that. To see, because it's so easy to think, oh my God, how are we going to get through this? You know? And when you look back in history, you can imagine there have been many times when people thought, how are we going to get through this? How are we going to survive this? Of course, never, none of them did. And none of us will. But that's not the point. You know, the, maybe you're an optimist, so... This might not apply to you. But for, for a pessimist, it's easy to kind of look at the world and think it's just all going downhill. You know, It's all just getting worse and worse. And, uh, what are we going to do? Um, but another way of looking at history is to see the evolution of consciousness as a positive thing. Right? Not very long ago, historically speaking, it was considered fine to own other human beings. <laughs> That's not considered okay today, even though it still happens. But nobody thinks it's okay. 
That's evolution. That's positive evolution, right? Just when we see all of the contemporary social movements towards justice, uh, towards equality, there's this, you know, the idea that women could be equal to men. I mean, come on. Language tells us that men are in charge because God is a man, first of all, right? And if I'm talking about humans or mankind, obviously men, right? Well, that we've blown that idea up. <laughs> Thank God. Sorry, didn't mean to. Thank Buddha, whatever. Thank us, you know. <laughs> so, you know, we can also see, like, a lot, there's a lot of positive change. And the rest of it is just greed, hatred, and delusion. It's just go, you know, oh, there, that, there. am I going to let that poison me? Because it's so easy to get poisoned by our news, <laughs> by our world, by the sense that uh, it's, it's just on a downward spiral. We don't know where we're, where this is going, you know. You know, I, I got an email from some organization asking me, oh, we're, we're asking spiritual teachers to write something about what they think the meaning of life is. And I wrote back to them and said, uh, I don't think that life has any meaning, so you probably don't want me. Me, what? What is that? I've never understood that phrase, the meaning of life. You know, it's li- life just is life, you know? It's energy, it's, it's creativity, it's creation. It's somehow uh, this miracle that something inanimate, <laughs> I mean, if you want miracles, there was a time when there was nothing alive on this planet, and then... Stuff that was not alive came alive. (laughs) That to me is the biggest miracle at all uh, that there is. And if anything, it just points to if if anything, if we can look at that, if you want to look at that in some positive way, it it looks like evolution trying to become conscious. And for consciousness, then consciousness uh, to. I don't know, to become, to be. Well, I've gone way too far. I, I was talking to, uh, for a long time, I was on the phone for a long time this morning with somebody who kind of works with me in, uh, as, I would say he's kind of a student of mine. I don't like to use that terminology, but some, that's kind of our relationship. And at the end of our conversation, I said, well, I've kind of rambled on, and I hope I made some sense. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm used to the Kevin Griffin stream of consciousness. So... Um, that's kind of some of you guys who know me are used to it but uh, um, I'm trying to decide if I should close with something specific or because we have some time and it would it would be possible for people to ask questions and sometimes that's a, a better thing to do than me just rambling on in my own stream of consciousness. Yeah, I think that's what I'd like to do. I'll just, I'll just say that a review. 
the things that I've been talking about. Caring for ourselves, loving ourselves as just caring for ourselves. Community and connection. How important that is to work on that besides our inner work, our outer work. Non-ill will. And seeing this world and the news of the world as just this manifestation that's, that's kind of timeless. So, yeah, so a few minutes for people to ask questions if there are any. There's someone with his hand up in the back, right in the middle. Hello, I'm Jason. Um, so basically, I deal with this this um, question in my mind, which you've touched on, which is you go back to Christ and I guess what he said when he died. Um, and it's sort of the fundamental question is the evil men on earth, what do we do with them? Do we let them suffer hell after they leave? Um, which they will. You know, I call it the... the zero dimension where there is zero frequency zero light no god all but fire and darkness and screaming and this place is eternal until god decides to take them out of it upon which it is not eternal however earth the the third dimensional duality which is what we live in um Will it ever be taught a lesson if we simply let those men, who are primarily men, except for a few women, cough, cough, um, <laughs> Earth will never be taught a lesson if, if, that's, if that is the case. So this is the, the black rose and the yellow rose. This is what I struggle with. Do I live in the yellow rose or do I live in the black rose? I mean, and, and this, is, this would not be, of course, you, you know, this w- this is the holy war. I mean, do we, do we purge them and, and restore his law, the law of the Almighty, on, on earth, of which we would never be able to restore because we already took the bite of the apple, of course, but we could get it pretty close. Or do we let them see hell after earth? Because, you know, life never ends. Uh, you know. So, so this, this is the question, but of course everyone keeps telling me Jason choose the yellow rose, but the Almighty keeps telling me you might need to choose the black rose. And but that would never mean mean me, of course, doing anything because I don't have to do anything. I, as much as I can understand what you're saying, because you're using language and, and metaphor that isn't that familiar to me, but generally, sorry, the yellow rose and the black rose, the Lord of Light and the Lord of Darkness. Okay, it's, so it's, I'm Jewish, so we don't believe in heaven and hell, but I do. Um, so, you know, from a Buddhist standpoint, it's not, it's, it's neither our uh, role or even our capability in our power to determine the, re, the karmic results that people have. So even, even for, uh, someone to say, I forgive you, doesn't actually solve someone's karma. The, you know, their karma has to kind of play but you're talking about You're talking about karma after life. 
No, no. Karma is karma is constantly being uh, created and and. So let me, let me simplify. Do, do we allow for the willful ignorance that we all have in this room? Basically, we all know pretty much what's going on. I mean, unless you are ab- absolutely ignorant, or do we rise up, strike them down, and restore his law? I, you know, I just. You're really talking in a dimension that's not really that. I can't really address it. I don't really. It's too, I'm sorry. It's not of, of light. It's just not. It's not a, a something I can address. I don't. I, you know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't be more responsive. Okay. A trick question. Okay. So my question is about. Our current um, political climate, yes, and about how the tendency of anger and hatred to arrive to like arise. And I was wondering, basically simplified, is can you hate Donald Trump and still be a Buddha or be Buddhist? <laughs> can you hate Donald Trump and still be a Buddhist? I I heard you, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, I I think. I try to avoid being a Buddhist because it just seems to be a lot of baggage that uh, that goes along with it. Um, you know, I don't think it's a question of you know can we can we stop? I mean, can you not? <laughs> can you not? hate somebody that you hate how do you do that uh, i don't i don't even know if that's a if we should think in such direct terms so what what the buddha suggests is that we pay attention to our experience that is what we're experiencing in a particular moment, and then try to make choices based on what we're experiencing. So if you are experiencing rage and you're aware of it, you will realize that you are suffering. And if you are wise, you will then try to let go of the rage. It kind of reminds me, you know, Jack Cornfield's teaching on forgiveness includes, he says, you know, we, we don't let the anger arise in our heart, but we don't condone the activity or let the person continue to, pre- to harm people. So, you know, to me, this is, you know, the, the Buddha says, when you're angry, you are giving your enemy exactly what they want. You're making, you're cre- causing pain for yourself, right? Because anger is painful. So can we, again, going back to the simile of the saw, not letting the thought arise of hatred, not, and, and not, it's, to me it's not even the thought, it's the feeling, it's allowing it to, to infiltrate and take you over and become an obsession. Of course, we're going to 
react with horror at another person's destructive activities, especially if they have power and they're inflicting pain on people. But if we take that in and let it eat away at us, then it's not doing us any good and it's not actually harming them. So the, the great challenge is to act for change and act very energetically for change to not allow that harm to continue while not allowing it to poison your own heart. And this is, the, this is what something like the, the organizations like the uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship really tried to address because they, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship was begun by these activists who realized that their activism in the, in the 60s and 70s, early 70s, was uh, founded in anger. And even though there was wisdom behind that anger, its manifestation as anger was ultimately against the very principles that they were trying to express. You know, you can't, if you're attacking someone for, have, for having a war, you're just creating another war. So, of course, the Gandhian principles, you know, come in here. And, and it's, of course, again, just maybe impossible, but it, it, I think if you want to be a Buddhist, this is what you, what you strive for. It doesn't mean that we don't lapse into moments of, you know, throwing yogurt at the television screen or something, you know, but I was just, I didn't want to break the screen, you know, but just, so I, that's why I threw yogurt. It's soft, you know. But that, you know, we see that, we try to catch that and see, what am I doing to myself? Grinding, you know, like, I, I, there's certain people that I do not follow on Twitter. In fact, I'm not sure if I follow anybody on Twitter. I have an account, but I'm, anyway, you know, I don't need to see every word, right? It's okay. Um, so, so there's this way in we have to, which we have to protect ourselves, you know, and at the same time not become passive. And again, this is a huge challenge. I mean, uh, you know, I, I got very passive in the 70s. I mean, it was partly the marijuana, but it was, uh, it was also like not wanting to deal with just like, oh, those people, you know, it's not worth it, you know, and that didn't, that was not helpful. Thanks for your question. There's another hand back there. Oh, oh well. Sorry, nobody listens to me. Hi, um, thank you for answering my question. Um, so I'm new to this, so if, sorry for those of you that You're new to, new to this? Well, new to coming to Spirit Rock Great. and meditation, etc. Um, so I'm in education, and I just wanted to see if you can, because you, when you're talking about the mother and the protectiveness, oh. I think sometimes teachers see the problems with children, and they um, really expand themselves. Um, so I, I wanted to see if you could kind of talk a little bit about that. Sorry. It's they really e- expend themselves? Is that what you said? They, they overextend like, themselves. Yeah, right. So if you could kind of help me with the balance of yeah. trying to solve some of the things we see with our children. Yeah. 
and taking care of ourselves as well. Yeah, uh, thank you. That's a really good question. Uh, and I, I work with um, the Mindful Schools organization that trains teachers to practice mindfulness and to, and to bring mindfulness into the school, school rooms, classrooms. And I, and I often hear this uh, from the teachers that I, that I work with, They're mostly working online, but I see from their comments about the course. And um, yeah, this is you know, the challenge really for, for caregivers of any kind. You know, I've worked, worked with, you know, I gave a workshop once at a, um, a convention to doctors, a medical convention, and it's the same, same kind of problem, although it is a special challenge working with children. And um, the, Frankly, I think the problem starts with the type of personalities that are drawn to working with children because it's a, a caretaking personality, which, and oftentimes caretaking personalities aren't good at taking care of themselves first. And so the, probably the biggest challenge is to find out, to understand what, what are appropriate boundaries. You know, what, what is it appropriate to give and what is it appropriate to not give? And, and that's what I, where I think then practicing mindfulness around that uh, and, and um, being, trying to maybe talk to other people like for, like, does this look like I'm taking care of myself? You know, does this sound right? You know, uh, trying to find that balance. Um, and, and yeah, there, there's, you know, loving kindness and mindfulness are not about giving ourselves away. If we give ourselves away, then we don't have anything more to give. And so that, that really does mean learning about boundaries, emotional boundaries, physical boundaries, and, and limits. And uh, you know, I, that can only really be done with the conscious effort to explore those questions. And as I say, I think a certain amount of guidance from others' feedback uh, and, and and so yeah, just just kind of engaging the question and asking the because I think the answer is contained to a great extent in the question itself. Like you're in a moment of like, okay, what am I doing here? What you know? How am I handling this? And uh, and to be and to and to not be afraid to take care of yourself. You know, uh, it's it's hard. We, to a great extent, our culture doesn't. Tr- teach us to take care of ourselves. Um, and it, it can look like selfishness to someone who feels that they should be more giving. But, uh, you know, it's the old um, instructions on the airplane to put the mask, the oxygen mask over your own before you put it over the child. So if you can't breathe, you can't, they can't, you can't help them. Um, but it's something that just, it really requires ongoing engagement, really, uh, until you can get to a point where you learn it, where you relearn how to be in balance with it. So, yeah, thanks for that question. I, I think I'm going to uh, just stop there and, and just close. I want to offer you uh, a practice that's at the end of the book, which is, oh, I'll just do it out of the book. <laughs> Uh, which is um, 
a practice for the earth uh, because ultimately, well, finally, let's say, loving kindness, uh, when the Buddha says, radiating kindness over the entire world, that must include the earth. So let's take a moment to go inside And you can just let these words go through you or you could try to repeat them. Gently closing your eyes. Breathing into my heart, I feel my connection to the air and atmosphere all around me. Breathing out of my heart, I radiate love to the air, the atmosphere, seeing it protected and healed. The sky is bright and blue, the air precious and pure. Breathing into my heart, I feel my connection to the earth beneath me. Breathing out of my heart, I radiate love down into the earth, seeing it protected and healed. The earth is vibrant, green and fragrant with life. Breathing into my heart, I feel my connection to the sea from which all life arises. Breathing out of my heart, I radiate love to the sea, seeing it protected and healed. The sea is clear blue, bright and shining. I hold the entire planet and all living beings in my heart with love, care, and compassion. May this planet be safe. May it be healed. May it be free from suffering. Thank you all for coming tonight. And yeah, I I will be here for a little while if people want to get books signed. That'd be great. <coughs>